Good evening. My name is Noelin, and I'll be reading our scriptures passage for today. Uh, today we'll be reading from Psalm 8. If you'd like a copy of the Bible, we have copies at the front. Feel free to grab one and keep it as a gift to you. Again, I'll be reading Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your force to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be back with you. And if you're new, uh, regardless of what your spiritual background is, really glad that you are with us this evening as well. Uh, I love that psalm uh, that was just read. And forgive me for my inadequacy in treating it this evening, but I hope we can see how, how glorious our God is. Because um, we're going through the psalms uh, for the next few months, and let's remember the purpose of this. So we want to develop the habit of not becoming secondhand Christians. We know things about God through devotionals or books, as good as those things are, but through the, the real stuff, the real ups and downs of our lives, we cultivate just a reflex of going to the Lord uh, amid everything that we go through so that we actually know Him personally. And so the past couple weeks, we looked at heavier psalms, right? So we looked at Psalm 79, which dealt with anger. We looked at Psalm 77, which dealt with sadness and frustration. And uh, today, we switch a little bit because this is such a a mountaintop uh, psalm. And at the heart of this psalm is that question in verse 4, where David, the psalmist, uh, hopefully the psalms take on a little bit more riches as well after we spent like a year in Samuel looking at David. So David wrote a a lot of the psalms. And at the heart of the psalm is that question, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? And this existential question is, it's unique to human beings. So I have an orange tabby cat. And as he lays on the windowsill looking outside at the birds, he's not asking, what is cat? And I I realize I may be canceled for saying this because of the way that Arlington residents tend to view dogs. But dogs don't say this either. I know Arlington residents think dogs have the same dignity as human beings. They don't. They don't philosophize. Dogs don't say, what is dog? Right? So this, this question is very unique to human beings. And what is it? It's essentially a question of identity. You know, how do I know that I matter? How do I know that I'm significant? And, you know, every Four to eight weeks or so, you know, I sit down with somebody, I'm talking with them, and they open, this happened just a couple weeks ago, um, where the person opened up and said, you know, I'm just having a really hard time figuring out who I am. Like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like, who is the real me? Every few years, it seems to be somebody different. Uh, it's in the air we breathe as a culture. You know, so all the movies, shows, I just saw the, one of the more recent Disney Pixar movies, uh, what's it called, Soul. And essentially, you know, if you guys have seen it, I can't try to explain it because it's trippy, but one of the guys is trying to figure out, like, his inner spark, like, who is the real him? What's his purpose? And, and we see it in the news all the time. Uh, you know, I know you guys look to me to be your expert on the latest social media happenings. And just uh, a couple days ago, you know, so Demi Lovato tweeted to her 55 million followers 
uh, you know, somebody to the effect of, you know, I've been doing a lot of soul searching, I've been looking at my feelings, and I've decided that I'm non-binary. You know, I don't necessarily identify as a male or a female, and I'm still a little bit in flux, but this is who I am. And there was an article a couple days as well that was talking about her and Michael Phelps, and they were talking about uh, mental health in the article. And Michael Phelps said in the article, he was like, and Michael Phelps, is, he's, I think he's the most decorated Olympian who's ever lived. And he said, you know, there are days where I don't want to keep living, <laughs> And I don't want that to be the case, and I want that to be the case for other people. And I, I bring up these examples because if people like Lovato and Phelps, who are you know, some of the most successful individuals by the world standards, wrestle with this question, like, who am I really? How do I know I'm really significant? Then we certainly do, too. And so can this psalm that was written 3,000 years ago provide any help for us? And yes, of, of course it can. And so as we think about this question, you know, who am I? Or put it another way, like, how do I know I'm not worthless? Uh, what do I do when I feel aimless? Uh, let's look at a few things this psalm, this psalm points out. And so uh, the first thing it says is to look at the significance of your smallness, the significance of your smallness. Next it says, look at the significance of your purpose. And then number three, look at the significance of your Savior. Okay, so how, how do you know who you are? Look at the significance of your smallness, your purpose, and your Savior. Okay, so first number one, your smallness. Uh, let's look at verse three. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So you can picture David, you know, we don't know exactly when he wrote this, but maybe he wrote it when he was still a small shepherd boy. You can picture him laying on a hillside, and he's looking up at the stars. I think most of you have been to a place where you're away from the city, and you look up, and it's as if, like, everything is so dark, except it looks like just diamonds have been scattered like seeds onto a a black blanket over it. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking, right? So this is what David is looking at. And before he gets to the question of what is man, he asks, how big is this God, right? Because he says, notice in verse 3, as I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. So a few weeks ago, I was putting together a bookshelf, and there was this tiny little screw that I had to situate in order to, you know, start screwing it in with, uh, I think it's called a Phillips head screwdriver. And, you know, so I'm like, I'm using my fingers. Why? I'm not using a foot. I'm not using my ape-like fist because it's a, it's a small thing. And so I'm using my fingers. And so as David is looking at the cosmos, he's asking, how vast is this God that he made it with his fingers? And like, do you guys know how, how big the cosmos is, are? I, I don't, I'm sure most of you here, if not all of you, because we're a church of nerds and I mean that in the highest compliment possible, can probably correct me on a lot of this stuff, but from what I've gathered, it's just the more we learn about the universe, we realize it's even larger uh, than, we, than we keep thinking it is. And so to, I, I love doing this every few weeks, and so I hope you do too. So as we think about the size of our universe, so let's start with just our solar system alone, right? So our sun and the planets and stuff that orbits just our star. So if you were to travel from our planet to the outer ring of just our solar system, and you were to get on the fastest passenger jet that we have, which goes about 700 miles an hour. That's fast. Right? It's like the fastest that most of us mortals can move at. If you were to get on a jet like that, go 700 miles an hour, it would take you straight 14,500 years. That's a long time. I mean, that's well before Abraham and Sarah lived. Just to get to the outer ring of our solar system. And our, our, our solar system, like our one star, is one of roughly 250 billion stars in our singular galaxy. 
So the Milky Way galaxy, um, it, as far as current estimation goes, our current Milky Way galaxy, it's about, um, about 105,000 light years across. Right? And so how fast does light travel in a second? So in the time it takes you to snap your fingers, about that quickly, light will travel around the Earth seven times. That's fast. So light moving at that speed for 105,000 years, that's just the, the breadth of our galaxy. And our galaxy is one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. Are you guys amazed? I can't tell because I, I see your mass. Like, you should be astounded, right? This is, our, our world is massive. And so if you can please pull up the photo. So I was watching a video this week, and so many of you, this is the, one of the photos that the Hubble Space uh, Telescope took a number of years ago. And what, what I love about this photo is, so the scientist who was talking about it said, you know, so they launched the telescope up, and they pointed it at what looked like a dark patch of sky and snapped a photo and, you know, zoomed way in, which also means you're looking back into time, which is trippy. So it zoomed way in, and each of those dots, small and large, each of those aren't stars, they're galaxies, Okay, so these are tens of thousands of galaxies, and here's what's crazy, okay? So what he said was, if you were to hold up your finger and just put one particle of sand on your finger, you know, and close one eye, and look at the amount of space that one particle of sand is taking up, like, in the blue sky, that's the surface area that this photo is taken from, like one grain of sand. Our universe is massive. And so David is saying, how big is this God if he made all of this with his with his fingers. With his fingers. Okay, so what does this have to do with your significance? Everything in the world. Because what David does here, it's so counterintuitive. Because what our culture says with respect to how do you know you're significant is our culture equates bigness with significance and smallness with insignificance. So bigness, right? Like what, what degree do you have? How much intelligence do you have? How much physical attractiveness do you have? What are you doing in your career? These are the kinds of things that make you significant. And if you're not big, then you're small and insignificant. Okay, and so the only way in that mental framework that you can go about getting a sense of significance by being big is you have to delude yourself, either by A, puffing yourself up to make yourself seem bigger than you actually are, or you have to shrink the world down so that you're, you know, a big fish in a little pond, both which are narcissistic and ultimately psychologically untenable, or you just can't do it because you always have to be, you know, reassuring yourself of how big you are. But what David says is, no, your significance doesn't come from telling yourself over and over how, it's not that you're big and significant or small and it's insignificant, it's that you're really small but so significant. Why? Because, and here's we see just the radical difference the scriptures make compared to our world. So what our, our culture says is, you know, over and over, all the self-help gurus and so forth will say, you know, tell yourself, you know, you're valuable, you have worth, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And the thing is, they're right. But the other thing, and here's where cognitive dissonance take place, is there's no actual basis for saying that. That you're significant in a naturalist worldview. And I don't think anyone put this more succinctly and artistically then uh, Samuel Beckett, I believe his name is. He was a 20th century Irish playwright. And Beckett, he wrote a play called Breath. It's 35 seconds long. 35 seconds. And here's how the play goes. <laughs> so it's not funny. I shouldn't be laughing, but it's, it's, it's intense. So it's 35 seconds, and the play starts. Everything's dark on the stage. And you hear a birth cry, and you hear a breath. And as the lights slowly turn on, 
all that's on the stage is trash. Just trash everywhere. And then, you know, about 15, 20 seconds in, the lights slowly dim. And the final few seconds as the lights go out, you hear another exhale, a gurgle, and the play ends. What's Samuel Beckett's point? You're trash. Human beings are trash. He says, you can say all you want, human beings have dignity, human beings have value, but he's, he's saying in a naturalist worldview, where it's just a, a materialist world, chance intersection of time and space, you can't say on any basis that human beings have more dignity than anything else. We're trash. And you can say, well, that's a pessimistic way of viewing things, but, but he's absolutely right. Now contrast that with the scriptures, because here in the scriptures, when David's saying that God made the cosmos and he made you with his fingers, what this, mean is, what this means is God is an artist. And when an artist creates anything, like when you look at a work of art, what does it point to? It points to the inner life of the artist who made it. And to the degree that that artist has skill and dignity, to that degree, that piece of art has value. So there's a reason why if you're walking in the city and you come across like a stapled packet of papers of a handwritten symphony... And you find out that this symphony in your hand was like handwritten, composed by either John Williams or Hans Zimmer. All of a sudden, you're going to realize you have something of great worth in your hand compared to if you found out it was written by some like 18-year-old music major. Right? Why? Because of the dignity and the skill of the artist who made it. And so what Psalm 8 saying, Psalm 8 saying is, if God is the most joyful and creative artist in the cosmos, and he made the cosmos and you with the most joy and creativity than, that any artist ever has, how significant does that make you? <laughs> more, significance, more significance than anything else. And so the answer to, to guys, I mean, what this means is, I, I hope this isn't philosophical, because, I mean, think about the parts of you that you're the most ashamed of, I mean, think, of parts, think about the parts of you that you're always feeling like don't measure up. You know, maybe you have people who have said things to you in years past that you just can't get rid of because words cut so deeply. The way you find out who you are isn't by looking in and what my feelings are. It's not by looking around you or listening to other voices about what other people have told you. It's not even listening to your own voice. The answer of the scriptures are you look up. And you look at the vastness of the stars and you say, who am I that you are mindful of me? And yet you are. God really made you. I mean, he was so intentional with how he fashioned you. And he loves you. So that's the first thing. You have to see how significant you are in your smallness because of how big God is. Okay, number two... You have to look at the significance of your purpose. Why are you here? Some of you are, have jobs right now that makes you question every day, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> okay, so what's the significance of your purpose? So uh, look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look at verse 9. You notice it says the same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the same thing. And so this is a rhetorical device called an inclusio, which means that um, everything, all the smaller things that are in between these bookends are framed by the bookends. So these bookends tell a, a great story, and all the little things are the smaller story that makes up this big story. So what's the big story? Our God, who's majestic over all things in the earth. And the name that he uses here for God in, in verse 1 and verse 9, so notice your English translations that have 
Uh, when it says, O Lord, that first Lord should be capitalized. And that's the English rendition of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And that's the, God, that's the name that God gave himself when Moses and his people asked, Who are you? And so when God said, I'm Yahweh, what, what that name means is, I am, or I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. In other words, there is no one and nothing in the world more absolute, more pure, more whole, more pure actuality, more free to be himself than God. Like there's no name more fitting than I am who I am. Us human beings were finite and derivative. God is completely uncontingent and infinite. And so this, this great God, what has he done? Why has he made the world? Well, it says at the end of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. And then verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. In other words, the reason why God created creation was to be a theater for his glory. So as you look at creation and you see amazing things like the stars or mountains and you see hilarious things like platypuses and like hilarious cats and dogs, all these things, what do they point you to? They point you to the vastness of God, the wisdom of God, the humor of God. And so as you look at creation, the point isn't creation itself. It's to see the inner life of the artist who made it. And so just as you go to a theater to see a play, you look at creation to see like how hilarious and awesome and wise is our God. So that's why God made creation as a theater for his glory. So why did he make human beings? Verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So this is a reference to Genesis 1, when God created the world, and then, you know, he created uh, the animals, separated night from day, and blah, blah, blah. I don't mean that irreverently, just, you know, the rest of Genesis 1. And then his uh, artistic flourish, you know, at the end, he makes human beings, man and woman, who he crowns with glory and honor. And what, do he do, what does he do to man and woman? He gives them dominion over the works of his hands. So to give someone dominion over something is to entrust them with something that's yours, and you give it to them to manage, and then you expect that when they manage it and they give it back to you, it will be in better condition than when you gave it to them. So when I was... 19 or 20 in college, I, uh, so I went to a big Division One school, and we didn't always have the best of sports teams, but the, the strength and conditioning coach of the school, he was very well known. He wrote books that other Division One strength coaches would use to train their teams, and as I began to get interested in this field, uh, I wanted to learn from him, and I did this very informally and maybe unprofessionally, but so how did I get an internship with him? I just, I walked into his office, I just kept showing up until finally I found him, and I walked into his office and I just said, hey, I'm Steve, can you teach me? And for reasons I still don't know, he decided to teach me, and so he takes me under his tutelage for that semester, and so here's how it went. The first couple weeks was just him saying, Steve, don't touch anything. Just just observe, just watch. You can ask questions after the session. And that slowly morphed into, okay, you can hand this athlete a towel. You can wipe down the bench, you know, after the athlete uses it. Until eventually, after I learned more and more, what did he do? He gave me dominion of the athletes under his care. So there were some mornings I'd show up at five in the morning and he'd say, hey, I have to go here. You know, I have to meet with so-and-so. Or I have to take this team, but the basketball team's in here today as well. I can't manage them. I want you to take them. And I want you to run them through the warm-up. I want you to run them through the strength and conditioning session. You know, like, you know, he sees the deer in the headlights, look in my eyes, like, you can do it. 
And what was he doing? He was entrusting these athletes that belonged to him to me to care for them. And because of the dignity of this person that was giving them to me, because of the meaning of what I was, it didn't matter if I was holding towels. It didn't matter if I was timing a 40. It didn't matter if I was, you know, uh, spotting somebody on a squat. I was so thrilled to do whatever he asked me to do. And I was so careful because when I give these athletes back to him, they better be in better condition than when he gave them. And they better not be injured, you know, than when he gave them to me. And so you see what David is saying? When he's saying that God has given you dominion over his works, what this means is anything that you find your hands to do, no matter how seemingly insignificant, God has given you dominion over this task. Why? Remember the brackets of Psalm 8. To be used for his glory. To contribute to this theater of his glory. And what this means is any task, no matter how small, is of infinite significance. I don't care if you're in spreadsheets all day or you have 10 extremely irritating meetings or if you're watching over your children for the day. Any single task, no matter how mundane, God has given you dominion over to steward and he uses it for his glory, no matter how small. And if you view your work in this way, I think it would help a lot of the restlessness and frustration and envy that we often feel when it comes to our jobs. And to top this off, because, I mean, you might say, yeah, well, sometimes, like, read, um, read verse, the, the end of verse 6. You have put all things under his feet. So the psalmist is painting this picture of whatever you find your hands to do, like, it obeys you. But, you know, I mean, so much of your work is frustrating, right? Like, it always seems to fall so short of the ideals you have for it in your mind. So why is the psalmist saying this? And he's saying this because ultimately, this is pointing to Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 2, when the writer of Hebrews is encouraging uh, weary Christians who want to give up, he quotes this, this part of Psalm 8, and he says it's Jesus who's the ultimate human who put all of creation under his dominion. And so this is why when there's a storm-tossed sea, and Jesus says, you know, calm that down, the sea says, okay, and it was still. This is why when Jesus got on a young, unbroken in little donkey and rode it in Jerusalem, when there were crowds swarming around the donkey, why the donkey didn't lose its mind because it had the Lord over all comforting him and steering him as it was going through that crowd. It's Jesus who's ultimately Lord over all creation. And so the point is, as this points us to Jesus, is, I mean, not only one, can you rest because Jesus, who's Lord over all, is overseeing every little part of your life, but the reason why you know your work will amount to something, even if it seems so pointless, done to the glory of God is because Jesus is overseeing it, and he is going to bring it to completion. And so it's as if in the, in the new heaven and new earth, like, you'll get to sit on whatever amazing porch will be there with Jesus. And as you look out over the new earth, like, you'll be able to say things like, oh my gosh, you were doing that through that mundane, mundane job I had? You did that through me when I had that conversation with that person It seemed to accomplish nothing? You did that through me when I chose to follow you when I, when I didn't want to? And you did that? Yes, he does, because there's no small work in the kingdom of Jesus when it's done in the knowledge of it's, he's given it to you to have dominion over for his glory in the earth and in the cosmos. Okay, so that's, it infuses your work with so much meaning. Okay, so next number three, can you see how small and significant you are? You see the significance of your work done for God's glory as you have dominion over it. And then number three, look at the significance of your Savior. So 
Go to verse 2, because this verse, it seems a little out of place, doesn't it? So, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And so what David's writing here is there's something about babies and infants, that seems weird, something that comes out of their mouths that establishes the strength of God and conquers his enemies. Or put another way, so think about, you know, is there anything more weak or helpless than a baby? Not many things. I think even a lot more like baby animals are more self-sustaining than baby human beings. So the, the point of this is God uses what looks so weak in the world or insignificant in the world to conquer the strong and the powerful. And it has to do with what comes out. It's not even just the arms of babies, but their words, which have even you know, less power. So what's he talking about here? And if you go to Matthew chapter 21, this is after Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem, and he walks into the temple, Matthew 21, beginning in verse 14, and it says, the, blame, the, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So in other words, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the political leaders, these were people, right, by trying to make themselves big, had shrunk their world down like the temple was their domain to make themselves feel important. And they see, you know, the people who they look at as weak and insignificant running to Jesus, the lame, the blind, the children, the people they had written off in society. And they're praising Jesus. They're saying, why are they praising this man Jesus? And Jesus says to him, Jesus says to them, yes, have you never read? Anytime Jesus looks at you and says, have you never read, you should, you should worry. And he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is the Greek translation of Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So what's coming out of the mouth of these children? Praise. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, Psalm 8 foretold a day when the Lord over all creation would come and defeat his enemies and usher in harmony into the world. And so when, when these little children and the lame and the blind are crying out in praise to me, they recognize me as the Lord over all. And so Psalm, what Psalm 8 is pointing to, that's happening right now. That's me. That's all mate's talking about. <laughs> just can't imagine being there when Jesus says some of this stuff. And one of the things, so there's two things Jesus is getting at here. First, what he's saying is, it's always the weak and the insignificant who recognize Jesus for who he is. Right? And so don't be unmoored or scared when people maybe mock you or think of you as foolish for believing in Jesus. Because it's always those who look foolish in the eyes of the world who see him for the magnificence of who he is. But number two, it's not just those who are weak and insignificant who recognize the Lord. It's how God works. Where is the moment where you see this take place? God using what is insignificant and weak in the eyes of the world to conquer enemies in darkness. And the answer is it came shortly after this passage because... No one looked more insignificant, more weak, more helpless than Jesus Christ did on the cross. And yet it was at that moment on the cross where he was never more significant, never more strong, never more worthy. Why? Because it was at the cross where the power that upholds the heavens, the consuming fire himself, the very love that made the world decided to die in your place for your sin and then rise from the dead. 
it's, it's at the cross where you see God looking the most insignificant where he was the most strong. So it's at the cross where you see the glory of God. It's at the cross where you see the majesty of God. How do you know God is mindful of you? It's at the cross where you see Jesus Christ saying, I am so very mindful of you. The stars and the trees and the oceans swirl and shout declaring the majesty of God. And this same God says, who are you? You're my beloved child and I am so mindful of you. And so as you look at the majesty of God, see that you're his artistic creation and just how significant you are. See your significant purpose as everything you do, no matter how small, is used for God's glory. And look at the significance of your Savior, which assures you that these things are true and always will be. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you made the stars, and you made us, and you are mindful of us, Lord. And, and so um, I pray that I and I pray that our church will be a people who declares your praise, um, as those people on the margins did uh, 2,000 years ago for Jesus. And I pray that we will be people who know that we're so significant, not because of any inherent strength in ourselves or because of anything that we find from looking within, but by looking to Jesus. Uh, thank you so much for this. Help us to practice it just a little bit more this week. And as we do so, may we be um, a pointer to other people about how great you are. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.